Welcome. Pull up a seat, grab a cup, and get ready to share, listen, and learn. This is my favorite coffee story with your host, Aniko Samoji. You'll hear about the stories about coffee itself, the history, health benefits, recipes, and more, along with some personal stories inspired by coffee and the lifestyle. Now, here is Aniko Somoji. Welcome to My Favorite Coffee Story. We are so glad you've joined us. Welcome to our listeners all around the world. Welcome to our listeners in China and Ireland and also in the United States, in Silicon Valley and Austin, Texas and Seattle. We are so glad you're with us and we have an amazing show today. We're talking about entrepreneurial life stories. And before we invite our special guest to join us, and I introduce him, we have our Anikona Farm moment. So at Anikona Farm, we've been having some glorious days. We have nice friends visiting with us, and we've been sharing coffee times on the farms, on the farm. And we're getting ready to prune the trees, and that's really important so that the trees stay healthy and we can get ready for our next harvest, which will probably be in September. So we just finished our last harvest, and that's a great time to work with the coffee trees to do some pruning and make sure that they're healthy. So that's a little bit about what's going on at Anikona Farm. And now, if I may introduce our, our wonderful guest today, Christopher Samoji. He's the Senior Vice President at Zenova in, in Seattle. And Zenova helps corporations solve a lot of challenges that have to do with manufacturing and process challenges. And we can't wait to talk with Chris about entrepreneurial life stories. So welcome, Chris, to the show. Thanks so much. Great to be here. We're so glad you've joined us. And you have been involved in innovation and entrepreneurial efforts for most of your life. It would be so fun to share with our listeners a little bit about your early days in your career and how you decided to even pursue biomedical engineering at Purdue University. Well, that's a great question. I guess at the time in the late 70s, biomedical engineering was very much a, uh, a new field. Uh, only a couple of schools even had programs in it. What I was attracted to was the interdisciplinarity of it all. So we had to learn quite a bit about electrical engineering and mechanical, but also biology and organic chemistry. Um, my father was a physician and my mother was an engineer, so it seemed the natural uh, compromise between the influences that they were extending. But uh, I love the... I loved the idea of being able to take models from uh, biology uh, and apply them to the mechanical world that, that we live in. Uh, and in, in fact, we see that, uh, that pattern going on pretty much since kind of the birth of mechanization. Thank you for sharing with us. And we're so curious, some of your first projects there at Purdue, what did they entail, please? Ah, well, uh, so I did have the chance to work in the research lab uh, in biomedical engineering. Um, one of the things we were interested in was to try to figure out uh, a non-invasive way to determine cardiac output. Cardiac output is literally how much volume of blood your heart is able to 
it to uh, to pump out with each with each contraction, and it's a measure of how healthy your heart and your whole circulatory system is. And the, unfortunately, the way to do it now, uh, or, or certainly back then, was very invasive to take samples and. Uh, uh, yeah, not not much fun. So a professor there named Leslie Geddes, who was sort of the father of much of biomedical engineering, uh, had an interesting project. And uh, we had to d design and develop a certain catheter uh, with these electrodes in it to measure how the blood responds uh, with, with speed. Uh, and long story short, we came up with some algorithms that uh, could be used to determine cardiac output non-invasively. Chris, those are fascinating projects. As a student, what was life like at Purdue? Because it's such a great engineering university. Um, did you have a favorite coffee place there on campus that you would hang out with your friends? Uh, well, there was this place called uh, Harry's Chocolate Shop, which <laughs> didn't sell a whole lot of chocolate, uh, mostly, <laughs> mostly adult beverages. But, um, you know, I'd say life at Purdue for at least half the year was remarkably cold. And so being able to sneak into a, a cozy place with friends, uh, maybe have an Irish coffee uh, at the end of the week or end of, the, end of a long day of classes was, was always a fun thing. How fun. Well, at, the, at that particular cafe, did you ever have, you love hot cocoa, I understand. So did you have any good hot cocos by chance? You know, that's a great question. I can't remember uh, hot cocoa with, with rum or tequila drinks, but, you know, now I'm going to go research that. Oh, well, some of those first projects there at Purdue were really uh, at the forefront of tissue engineering. Was that by chance also inspiring to you to look into that field? It was. There was a, a class I took, um, uh, I guess towards the end of my, my time there, called Frontiers of Biology. It was one of those one or two credit classes that you just sort of came and, and observed. Um, but uh, it actually had a huge impact on my life. And the professor there uh, showed us a series of slides one day. And uh, she had taken a fertilized chicken egg and given it uh, some number of days to mature and then carefully opened it up uh, one by a little crack in the egg and took some of the, the cells from that location and put them into a, a different location in the egg and then sealed it up and put it back in the incubator. And when the chicken hatched, it would hatch with some very strange things. It might have hatched with three legs oh my. or four breasts or uh, other, other strange things. And what she was just trying to say is that, uh, you know, how, how an organism develops architecturally, structurally, um, really is uh, a matter of, of this whole choreography of developmental biology. I was uh, really entranced by that whole concept and, and, and captivated by, by developmental biology generally as a process, but also the, the notion that this might be manipulatable for uh, medical and agricultural benefit. How interesting. That's fascinating. And how wonderful you had that opportunity at Purdue to partake in some of those research projects. You, you've had an amazing career. I know you ventured then to Tulane University and did a graduate program in biomedical engineering. Uh, were there some tissue engineering projects that you were involved in there or some other projects? No, it was less tissue engineering. Uh, that was uh, more understanding the biomechanics of uh, breathing 
and how um, how different muscles work together in coordination. I guess what I got out of that also is the uh, uh, the notion of uh, I guess sort of how everything is sort of tied together. You know, and when we design, say, machines, you know, you push on this this button, that lever moves, and something happens. But the, the the body is such an incredibly complex system with all kinds of feedback loops that control and and modify and amplify through electrical, mechanical, chemical signaling. Yes. Uh, it's it's just amazingly complex. How wonderful was that program? Then um, a two year program there at Tulane. Uh, it's normally a two-year program. I, I think I snuck in under two, but yep. How fascinating. Did you also enjoy those Mardi Gras times there in New Orleans? You know, I wish I could say <laughs> I did, but uh, for some reason, a lot of the important papers that I had to had to work on were due right after Mardi Gras. And, you know, Mardi Gras is not a day. This is important <laughs> for true. people to know. Mardi Gras is a season. It goes on for weeks, especially in New Orleans, and where I happened to live was right on a road where a lot of people went up and down parading. So to me, Mardi Gras was um, a time that was very, very difficult to get my work done. I can, I can imagine. I know you've had lots of travels to Europe, and you visited relatives, and, and I bet you have some interesting coffee stories in Europe that kind of weave in between your entrepreneurial projects. Would you like to share any of those, please? Ah, well, let's see. Um, you know, I, I've become very interested in coffee uh, in the past few years. Um, and uh, I guess there's a certain kind of um, localized snobbery about the coffee legacy of one city versus another or about whether the French do it better than the Turks who might <laughs> do it better than the Saudis, but the Viennese really top them all or the coffee houses in Amsterdam. So it's kind of interesting to sort of compare um, the, the cultures and, and their self-perception about, about how coffee weaves into their lives. And maybe by chance, when you've had some of these science meetings and you've talked with various scientists around the world or in Europe, over some um, particular project? Have you had some good meetings over coffee by chance? Definitely. But I'd say that some of the best uh, meetings are with the best coffee. So not to name any, I will not name any country names, but there's some that drink a lot of coffee but don't really have a, a great <laughs> palate for it. Okay. So meetings there with that coffee not super great. But I, but I had, have had quite a few meetings in Vienna actually with some scientists involving nanotechnology scale uh, printing, and uh, there's nothing there's nothing better than getting a, a, a beautiful cup of Viennese coffee in a Viennese coffee house and talking science. And I I understand that you know a little bit about how coffee originated in Vienna. I think our listeners would love to hear that story, Chris. Sure. So, uh, and actually, I was just recently in Vienna and uh, got a little refresher of it. Um, so, it's important to remember that um, many of the things we take for granted, like chocolate and coffee uh, and cane sugar and things like that, were really unknown in most of uh, Europe in the Middle Ages and even into the Renaissance. And sure enough, coffee was not really known. 
If we can go back to the year 1683, uh, the Ottoman Empire, the Turks, uh, was making uh, tremendous progress in its its intended conquest of, of Europe, and uh, they had taken Constantinople, had taken what is Bulgaria and Romania and Serbia and Hungary, and uh, they, they were on the gates of Vienna, intending to uh, not only take over Vienna, but bust all the way through and essentially conquer Christendom. So they had a vast army and were sieging the city. Uh, but at the last moment, um, uh, a group of armies uh, came upon Vienna and worked together and managed to defeat the Turks, uh, thanks mostly to the heroic efforts of the Polish military leader who came in, King John. So um, the Turks fled and left all kinds of stuff behind, including many, many bags of, of strange green beans. And uh, the booty of the Turkish army was... Uh, split among the among the, uh, the successful armies, but nobody seemed to want these beans. Uh, it turns out that the Poles uh, decided they would take them because one of their one in their ranks who had done a, uh, had worked as a translator in the uh, Ottoman uh, army years ago, and he was very familiar with what those beans are about. So he he took them. Uh, and nobody else wanted them. He also managed to get himself a, uh, uh, a retail outlet, essentially, if you will, uh, called the Blue Bottle. And uh, he began selling roasted coffee to the Viennese, and they fell for it. And that was kind of the birth of the coffee house and of uh, coffee in Europe. That's a fascinating story, Chris. And I know that you are so good with your history, so I appreciate you sharing that with our listeners. Fascinating to note that the, the coffee still is wonderful and delicious, and the cafe houses in Vienna are, are truly spectacular. And we appreciate learning a little bit more about how coffee became so delicious in Vienna. So, Chris, we've been enjoying talking about your early days of your career and how you started out there in Purdue and you became interested in biomedical engineering and tissue engineering and then you went on to Tulane and we can't wait after the break to talk a little bit more about what it was like in your first job in Los Angeles at American Pharmacy and what were some of the projects there as you pursued your entrepreneurial interests right after the break so listeners please join us thank you The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com My favorite coffee story is brought to you by Anikona Farm, where every bean we grow represents a great story somewhere in the world. When you buy coffee from Anikona Farm, you're investing in new memories, stories, and experiences. We harvest our beans with your future story in our heart. So, from our heart to yours, enjoy the Anikona experience. May your coffee story be as rich and delicious as our Kona coffee with love. Please visit Anikona.com and get your Anikona Story coffee special today. 
What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private, personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for You with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to My Favorite Coffee Story with Aniko Samoji. Drop us a line and share your story. Our email address is orders at anikona.com. Again, that's orders at anikona.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back to My Favorite Coffee Story. We've been having such a wonderful time with Chris Samoji. We're talking about entrepreneurial life stories, and we were just talking about how Chris had um, gotten his biomedical engineering degree at Purdue University in Indiana and then went on to Tulane University and graduate degree in biomedical engineering and how entrepreneurial projects sort of have been um, weaving throughout Chris's career and we were just going to talk about Chris's first job in Los Angeles and what that was like at American Pharmaceal. What were some of your first projects there, Chris? Um, well, my first projects were to work on various medical surgical devices, um, uh, designing them, selecting the materials they were made out of, uh, developing ways in which uh, they could be actually be manufactured. So I spent a lot of time in the plants and also a fair amount of time with physicians. And when you would go, wouldn't you go to the manufacturing facility as well um, and you would try and see how, how the product is looking and you'd have to communicate with, with the manufacturing team? How is that? Well, sure. Uh, we, well, first of all, communicating with the manufacturing team was uh, helped by the fact that I took enough Spanish in high school that I could communicate with them. So that was good. Uh, what I really got was a sense of scale. I mean, this... Uh, this was a massive plant and they would get truckloads of plastic and giant molding machines and everything had to be scheduled just so and uh, timed just so. Uh, I really developed an appreciation for um, both the, the, the sheer size but also the, um, the precision and, and, and the delicacy of choreographing a manufacturing plant. Right. Right. Well, that's it's fascinating because you come from a very engineering perspective. And then I think it's fascinating to note that at some point you decided that you wanted to pursue an MBA to group the engineering background and then get your MBA. How did you make that decision? Uh, well, the, the, 
The honest answer is I couldn't believe how much more money the marketing people were making than the engineering people. Uh, and I thought, well, what, what's the difference? The difference is I didn't really understand a lot of the concepts that they were dealing with. And I was, I was pursuing this engineering degree and actually a second degree in French at the time. I just didn't really have a whole lot of spare time to be taking accounting classes. So I went back and got the MBA so that I would basically learn the fundamentals of capitalism, how to, how to operate in, uh, you know, in a country as complicated as, as complex as America with so much opportunity, you really need to learn the rules of finance and marketing and accounting. Well, and I think it's wonderful how you can balance being able to speak with engineers and the science team and the research team, but also work with, you know, whether it's a venture capitalist or someone who's possibly funding the project or the marketing team, and you do a great job balancing those various disciplines. How did you decide to go to the University of Washington to get your MBA? Uh, well, again, I was looking at an opportunity to, uh, to really uh, fill a gap in my education, my knowledge base. So I wasn't pursuing a particular career on Wall Street, uh, that sort of thing. I just, I really wanted just the information. But I also knew at that time that I was very interested in a potential entrepreneurial uh, path in life. Um, so Seattle was still kind of pre-Microsoft. It was still a little bit virgin territory. It wasn't, it wasn't the powerhouse that it is today with, with Amazon and so forth. Um, so, and it's a, it's a beautiful place to graze your kids and, and spend time. So it, it was just kind of the right size slipper, you know, to fit, to fit my foot, if you will. Right. Were there some memorable classes there at the University of Washington? Yes. Uh, again, because I'm a technical person, <laughs> I love the classes where you would try to figure out how to optimally, say, cut a, a piece of timber for maximum <laughs> value. There's a lot of math in there. So I love that. Um, I like the philosophy of business classes, learning about uh, Adam Smith and Schumpeter. Um, that was great. I uh, love the marketing classes, uh, the five P's of marketing. Um, uh, but I, I guess the most that you get out of the MBA program, as my son also tells me, is because uh, he's, he's recently finished his MBA, uh, you really kind of get an opportunity to uh, think differently, to kind of liberate yourself from whatever kind of box you might have found yourself in from your previous education and, and career. and just think completely orthogonally to that. And also to, to mingle with, with other, uh, other people and work in teams and so forth and just to try new things. So I, I like, I like the um, kind of the adventure and the boldness coupled with, you know, the, the very specific pieces of information that we were taught. And I think the interest in adventure and boldness really speaks to someone who has very much an entrepreneurial spirit. And I'm so curious, Chris, what was your first startup that you did in Seattle? Well, technically the first startup uh, was involving a cochlear implant, but that, that, didn't, uh, that didn't go anywhere. But I'll tell you what, a lot of the, the, the startup work that I did that didn't go anywhere for some reason or another were some of the best lessons. Um, the first real one that we did was called Lucent Medical Systems, and it was a medical device that would find the location and position of catheters in the body. 
And that was in Seattle. And so Seattle was kind of an up and coming um, sort of a hub of new technology and new innovation. It was a great place to do something like that. And you had a great team. How did you build that team? Well, that particular team, I just strolled onto the campus of the University of Washington and uh, started looking around at interesting uh, research projects. And I, I bumped into two two people that uh, we, had, we hit it off with. One was a physician and the other was a scientist. And they kind of needed the MBA guy. So the three of us teamed together. And um, uh, it's, it seemed to be the right kind of technology with many different applications, largely already worked out, um, interesting ways to implement it with a lot of creativity and a lot of opportunities for corporate partnering, which, which I'm a big fan of. So yeah, all those things worked out. We, uh, we received some grants, so-called SBIR, Small Business Innovative Research Grants. And we, uh, we received uh, a substantial investment from Japan's largest venture fund. And then we did corporate partnership deals with Abbott and Beckton Dickinson and Medtronic and Bard. And so, yeah, that was a very satisfying couple of years there. And in the Seattle community, you probably got to know other entrepreneurs and innovators. Um, you were part of a group called Alliance of Angels for a while. How, how was that group? So Alliance of Angels uh, is sort of Seattle's arguably premier uh, angel investment group. Angels are just regular individuals who like to make investments and provide mentorship to small new tech companies. So the Alliance of Angels, of course, is kind of interestingly dominated by both Microsoft people and I'd say old Seattle money from like lumber and fishing. Right. And would you say that if you were to pinpoint what are the topics that really get you excited and when you're really, I know you can do a variety of topics from medical and energy and robotics and, um, aquaculture, et cetera, what would you say are your favorite topics? I think my favorite topics, it's actually kind of both market and technology independent. My favorite topics have to do with kind of timing, timing of being kind of at the cusp, at the moment where ideas, concepts, even science fiction notions about how something might be finally intersect with the ability to start delivering on them because some right. brand new material has been discovered or some new essential component is now available you know, in, in volume at, at a low price, like say the microprocessor or memory suddenly available um, or, or carbon fiber, right? So super strong, super light. So it's usually, it's usually some kind of breakthrough is happening in the lab and in manufacturing overlapping kind of a pent up series of visions of how how something might be. Well, and that's that's uh, so interesting. I know you've had the opportunity to teach MBA students now at the University of Washington, and often you're a guest lecturer, and uh, you touch on a lot of these topics with students, and they've, they've asked you many times of um, what's important when you, when you do a startup, and what are the key things when you're interested in innovation? Uh, what are some of the things that you have taught your students? Well, there's a lot of blocking and tackling, so that's that's really important. Uh, and most of the most of the lectures that I've given were typically to scientists and engineers, 
morphing out of the business side. Uh, not everybody is cut out for that. So maybe the first question is, who am I? And, and, and how do I feel about myself doing this stuff? Um, am, I, am I willing to, to, to try these things? So a good, honest look in the mirror is the first question. Um, the next one is, uh, well, you have to have perseverance. Uh, you have to be willing to be told no a lot and, and no in a very unpleasant way sure. often. Um, and then, of course, you have to have the financial wherewithal to hang in there for all that time. You need a supporting family. You need some revenue source. Um, and you have to have a thick skin and know your mind. So you'll have all kinds of people wanting to change your mind for you. So you, you have to be pretty sure about your conclusion. That's a really good point. The other amazing thing that you've done is you've initiated a program for students who are thinking about maybe pursuing an entrepreneurial lifestyle or something in biomedical engineering at the University of Washington. And you've created an internship for students to explore these interests. How did that idea come about? That's entrepreneurial in itself. Uh, yeah, well, I guess that was, uh, I was also involved in a, in a group that sort of promoted education policy in the state of Washington. And, uh, you know, it always occurred to me that, uh, uh, Washington for sure and any other tech centric place needs more and more STEM trained people. Uh, but especially in engineering, uh, most of our high schools don't really bring the subject up until it's almost too late to have a serious go at it. So if you discover late in your junior year that, hey, this engineering thing might be kind of interesting, uh, but you've only taken algebra, right. it's going to be really hard for you to catch up in time. Um, so let alone deeper exposure to what are the different kinds of engineering. So my thought was we really need to get high school kids um, exposed to engineering much faster. So this was a program designed for kids going into their sophomore year in high school, and they would sit with uh, graduate students and full faculty members in biomedical engineering and design a medical product of some sort, some very serious ones, uh, defibrillators, uh, implantable cardiovascular devices, that sort of thing. So they got to live and breathe the process of product design, uh, problem an analysis, experiment design, um, you know, and even manufacturing issues kind of all the way through in, in a summer. And as a result of that, a number of these kids who had not, they shared with me, had not had the interest necessarily in becoming a bioengineer, did, became PhDs in biomedical engineering, and even a couple became physicians. And, and that is a program, I think, that the University of Washington still sponsors, thanks to your initiating that. So thank you for doing that, Chris. Well, I think they've done a good job in, uh, you know, advancing it and extending it. And uh, so, yeah, I think uh, engineering camps for high school kids is, is, a, is a potentially uh, high-yield activity. Well, and thank you for doing that. And before we go to break, Chris, we'd love to ask you um, about some of your favorite parts of innovation when you work on a project. What's your favorite part? Well, again, I guess it's the, sort of that aha thing. It, it's, right. it's almost um, the opportunity to create some kind of order out of chaos. <laughs> so the market sort of feels like there's a problem, um, but it can't quite describe it. 
and the problem solvers don't really know about the problem and can't quite figure it out and there isn't quite the right solution. And so if you see all these different puzzle pieces lying on the floor and you can imagine what the completed puzzle would look like and you realize, you know what, I have all of the pieces and I, <laughs> I think I know what it's supposed to look like and I think I know how to put puzzles together. That's the satisfaction. Oh, that's really well stated. Well, we're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back and talk a little bit more with Chris about how he was involved with New Zealand government and innovation. Please join us right after the break. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. My favorite coffee story is brought to you by Anikona Farm, where every bean we grow represents a great story somewhere in the world. When you buy coffee from Anikona Farm, you're investing in new memories, stories, and experiences. We harvest our beans with your future story in our heart. So, from our heart to yours, enjoy the Anikona experience. May your coffee story be as rich and delicious as our Kona coffee with love. Please visit Anikona.com and get your Anikona Story coffee special today. Voice America Network proudly presents the Catherine Zox Show for women, men, children, and families. Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern to the Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to My Favorite Coffee Story with Aniko Samoji. Drop us a line and share your story. Our email address is orders at anikona.com. Again, that's orders at anikona.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back to My Favorite Coffee Story. We're talking about entrepreneurial life stories. And we're weaving some fun coffee stories in between. And we were just going to ask Chris, our, uh, our guest, Chris Samoji, who's a senior VP at, in, of investment at Zenova in Seattle, and they will help companies come up with better processes and manufacturing processes um, for, for their uh, innovative processes. And Chris was going to just share with us what it was like doing innovation in New Zealand and working with the New Zealand government in promoting some of their future projects and technology. Please tell us about that. 
Sure. I was uh, asked to come down to New Zealand and to work for uh, a government group in the Ministry of uh, Business, Innovation and Employment. Um, they set aside a $500 million fund to, uh, to corporations that would uh, pay for innovative R&D that these companies would do. That was part of the job. The other part of the job was to build up a team of folks to um, comb the country and uh, encourage the manufacturing industry to, uh, to be more innovative. So, you know, New Zealand had a, a history of self-reliance from the government policies in the 60s. So they had, they were, they were making almost everything there in New Zealand, but that's really kind of inefficient. It was a big change and they invited exports and an open market. Um, but unfortunately, uh, both those policies together kind of left New Zealand manufacturing uh, you know, I'd say 10 to even 15 years behind what you oh, might really? see in, in, in similar countries. Uh, and yet, there's a country with enormous innovative capabilities. Uh, so there really wasn't the, uh, the match between um, the innovative genetics, really, of New Zealanders and what their manufacturing corporations were we're putting out. So we had this mission to kind of bring them up to speed and actually take the forefront. And what were some of those technologies that you were working on? Oh boy, just about <laughs> everything. Well, there were a lot of agriculture, as you can imagine, aquaculture, uh, things having to do with milk, milking, um, fertilizer management, uh, crop and herd management, fisheries management, making sure that other other countries aren't fishing illegally in their waters, uh, geothermal technologies, um, tech, agricultural waste to sort of ag plastics, hmm. uh, even oil industry. New Zealand's likely to develop an oil industry here soon, so encouraging them to become more technologically advanced, almost on the way Norway has done it. Right. Yeah. Did you also work on um, some of their rocket technology? Well, I didn't work on it, but but I did uh, oversee the funding of a company there called Rocket Labs, which was uh, an amazing uh, idea by a New Zealand entrepreneur. Uh, he realized that every country in the world has a certain right to exploit space just because by virtue of being a, a country. And New Zealand had various advantages on how to launch into certain orbits uh, and able to launch because of low naval traffic, no maritime traffic. And uh, he raised investments and he's building rockets uh, and launching. And one, perhaps one of the coolest things was he was actually 3D printing the full rocket engines uh, in a machine, uh, a very expensive machine out of titanium powder. How fascinating. That is so interesting. Well, your entrepreneurial background spans so many different countries. You also spent time in Australia when you were working for Intellectual Ventures, a Seattle company. What were some of the projects you worked on there, Chris? Sure. Well, Intellectual Ventures is a big fund family, about $6 billion centered around uh, patents. And at the time, we would form uh, strategies about what kind of uh, technologies that uh, would be very important and disruptive in, in the next 20 or 30 years. So uh, 
we opened up an office in Australia, hoping that you know it would be uh, a good place to come up with new innovation. Uh, and then we found out in a matter of years that it turned out to be one of our highest performing places. So uh, it was a great pleasure to get to work with our Australian team and to, to hire in a, an incredible group of, of employees and to uh, collaborate with folks at um, Australian universities and at the Australian National uh, Research Organization called CSIRO, which is uh, a, an absolute hidden gem of uh, really great talent in, in a whole series of different uh, technical subjects, which helps keep Australian industry uh, at, at the forefront of capability. Amazing. With some of those meetings at the universities in Australia, Chris, and some of those science conferences, and um, how how would you usually do those meetings? Was how do the Australians like to drink their coffee? Well, they typically involve coffee, right? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, let's go grab a coffee. Let's have a coffee. There's a great coffee house over here. No, not that one. Let's have over here. Uh, I really like their flat white. Flat white. What's yeah. a flat white? I hadn't heard of flat white, and you sure as heck Sorry, couldn't get one. You sure as heck couldn't get a flat white in, uh, in a Starbucks in Seattle back then. So it was a new new concept. I, I fell in love with the flat white because <laughs> it's very foamy. It's, you, you get your coffee hit, but you, but it's 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 sort of a gentle one. You have attended many international meetings, and you've been spoken to many of them yourself. And um, I know that you spend a lot of time also in Helsinki, Finland. And I didn't realize that in Finland, they actually drink the most amount of coffee per capita in the world. And that's in Finland. Well, you know, there, there is some sort of correlation between the gloominess of the weather and the coffee consumption of the local population. I think that's why Seattle is, you know, thought of as the, the big coffee center for the U.S. Uh, yeah, you know, after six or seven months in the dark wet, cold, uh, you know, it can be a little, a little bit of a downer. So uh, the coffee will help you get through it. What would you say the um, entrepreneurial vibe is in Finland? Very strong. Really? Actually. Again, so Finland's a country of maybe five million people, um, but their government has got a very sophisticated system to support entrepreneurship and technical entrepreneurship stemming from their universities and their government labs. Uh, they support all kinds of research, uh, all kinds of commercialization efforts. Uh, so it's it's an impressive level. I'd say between Finland, Israel, and Singapore, you've got some kind of global leaders, countries like Denmark, Australia, strong players. And so is being senior vice president of investments for Zenova, uh, you're working on a variety of projects all across the world, and I know those projects take you all the way from Israel, and we just mentioned Finland. What are some of the projects that you're doing in Israel? Well, I can't share them in gory detail, but I'll say that they typically have to do with, uh, for the most part, they have to do with food and agriculture. Uh, remember, Israel's history involved uh uh, taking sort of a swampy, salt marshy, uh, very unreliable rainfall kind of uh, 
terrain and turning it into some of the most productive agricultural fields in the world. So they've, uh, they've got a rich tradition of, uh, in, in food and agriculture. So most of the things we're working on tend to be in those space. In this. Um, with, with all your entrepreneurial skills, and you've described a variety of different projects in a variety of disciplines, and I think that's a, an amazing skill set that you have, Chris, that you can span so many different worlds and meet with a variety of, of people in on those projects. What would you say is maybe your future dream? I know you like to do technology and entrepreneurial projects that really have a purpose. And we've talked a little bit about your current projects. What's down the road, please? Well, uh, this is becoming current. It, it, uh, so following on, on the subject we talked about with the, uh, the, the professor at Purdue with the chicken eggs and then the um, uh, I, I started a tissue engineering company years later growing parts of teeth and that was successfully sold to Europe's leading dental company. That was in the field of tissue engineering. And uh, you know, nowadays, uh, as most of your listeners will know, uh, people are regrowing bladders and blood vessels and they're working on regrowing kidneys and livers and hearts. And so this is this, is this uh, we live now in the era of tissue engineering. It's very exciting. And, and, but that has typically been done in a medical realm. So I've just started, uh, co-founded a company with uh, some great teammates in San Diego called Blue Nalu, and we're going to be working on taking some of the lessons of tissue engineering and bringing it to um, the production of seafood. Okay. And that's about all I can say about it. The stay tuned. It's very exciting space. Well, it is exciting, and we're curious if you'd be kind to share with our listeners how you came up with the name Blue Nalu. So, uh, well, our, our initial meetings all occurred in Hawaii, and uh, Nalu is a Hawaiian word meaning both wave uh, and also, uh, believe it or not, amniotic fluid, me meaning just really kind of a, a warming, nurturing, supportive environment. And so we like that imagery, and... Uh, that's that's what we picked. I think it's a great name, Blue Nalu. I think, and we can't wait to hear more about it uh, down the road. And thank you for sharing that with us, Chris. You also are an avid, um, I would say, historian or someone who's really interested in geography. And how did you develop your interest in your interest in history, Chris? Uh, so my parents are were uh, immigrants to America and uh, they uh, from Europe and they brought a very strong tradition of, of understanding of history. Um, my father was a very busy physician. Um, in order to get near him I would have to sit in his library and his library was mostly complicated surgical books, <coughs> half of which were in Latin. Oh. So I didn't read too many of those, but the other half had to do with history books. So I would just, just to be near him, I would just sit there and read history books. Or I even read the Encyclopedia Britannica uh, over the course <laughs> of the years from, from the beginning to the end. Uh, and, and back then, I'd say most of the articles were about, you know, some obscure field commander in the Dutch army of, you know, 1520 or something like that. So, uh, 
I don't know, I just developed an interest in it. And of course, your travels uh, around the world, and you would travel and visit your relatives in Hungary in an early age, probably also contributed maybe to your interest a little bit in well, history? Well, yeah, my father's brothers were uh, big historians and artists, and so it was just always around us, and, and of course our travels took us to great sites. And uh, Well, also, you know, growing up uh, with the tradition of Hungary, uh, that country had gone through a lot in the, just the lifespan of my grandfather, from being part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, two world wars, the depression, the communists. And so you see right. how history is not just some vague thing happening over there somewhere. It, it's, it's, a, it's, a very, uh, it's a very alive, uh, it's a very alive thing with dramatic impacts on, on the vector of a country's prosperity. Really true. That's really well put. And do you have any trips coming up? or uh, some science conferences, or as you're working on some of your entrepreneurial projects? Uh, yeah, sure. I've got uh, going to the Future Food Conference in San Francisco at the end of March. It's going to be really exciting. Well, we So again, I, I've spent most of my time around medical with a little bit of time in silicon devices and uh, uh, information technology hardware. Uh, but what's going on in agriculture and uh, food tech right now is super exciting. So I think Definitely. that's kind of the one of the places to be. Well, your timing is really good in working on the aquaculture project, and we wish you well with that. You know, we, we would love to maybe succinctly share with our listeners what would be the key lessons for someone who – lessons in innovation, things to think about. Um, okay. Well, I mean, there's innovation. I, I put it kind of at the personal level and at the organizational level. At the uh, at the organizational level, uh, I would say you see a lot of movements in companies and in states and in universities expressing some frustration that there's not enough innovation going on. And what do we need to do? And they'll start incubators, or they'll get a lot of beanbag chairs and ping pong tables and think <laughs> they're moving innovation. But really, uh, in an organizational level, the problem isn't that people aren't being creative enough. I think everybody is, is brimming with creative opportunities and ideas. The problem is that the system is too much resistance. Okay. And uh, so in, in electronics, we have this formula called V equals IR. Voltage equals current times resistance. And so voltage is like the potential of something. Right. And current is how much flow through something is doing and resistance is resistance. And I think the same is true with innovation. I think there's a huge potential of innovation within an organization, but in order to get the big flow through of it to products and services and how they work with their customers and how they enhance their manufacturing yes. processes, that resistance within the internal structure of the company and their bureaucracy, that's the big impediment. At a personal level, um, I think it's important to get out of the cubicle and see all kinds of crazy things and travel. And you'll see the most amazing ways that people have uh, across the world and across time. Yes. That's why I love history as well, uh, have solved their own individual problems. And if you're paying enough attention, some little thing that you picked up on a trip once to Finland 
will cross-correlate with something you read about that someone used to do in Mayan Guatemala. And next thing you know, you've got an idea. Well, and your ideas are, are interesting because you'll come up with ideas and you might just kind of speculate the idea and it might not happen for a while and you tend to almost foreshadow some of the innovative trends. But it's, it's also interesting at what point those trends become reality and when is the timing right and all that. And it seems like as a, an innovator, as an entrepreneur, finding that balance between the timing and when the market is ready for that and investors are ready as well as the technology. And you touched on this earlier, that some of the technology has advanced to create the idea. Um, so all that is really interesting. And I think your entrepreneurial experience that you've had over the course of your career is you're just so wonderful to share with us and share with our listeners. I think before we will close here, we'd love to ask you the question, if you were to write a book, what would it be about? Oh, boy. Um, it would probably be nonfiction. Okay. <laughs> and it might involve, oh, I don't know, like the, the amazing things that people don't know that, that are happening, let's say, in plants, in botany, mm -hmm. something like that. Uh, I think there's just wealth of information in the human collective experience that we we've just are forgetting, right? I mean, the kinds of things that people used to know seem to be getting harder and harder to find. It's so true. It's so true. And we appreciate you sharing those elements. And we appreciate sharing about your, your entrepreneurial spirit and how you do so much good for technology and for our communities. Uh, we would like to thank you, Chris, for joining us today. Thank you for sharing about your entrepreneurial career, all the technologies you've done, and we really appreciate you joining us today. So thank you so much. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us. We really have had a lot of fun talking with Chris about entrepreneurial life stories. What's it like being an entrepreneur? entrepreneur while also talking about some fun coffee stories in between so it's been a lot of fun we're glad you've joined us and of course we always love to share our anikona gift on anikona.com to our listeners and of course if you'd like to continue the conversation um, you can always send us questions at radio at my favorite coffee story.com or you can also send us questions on twitter at anikona farm we've been having so much fun today and we thank you for joining us we wish you a wonderful week and we look forward to being together again next week on my favorite coffee story in the meantime we wish you a big aloha Thank you for taking an hour out of your busy week to join us on My Favorite Coffee Story. Please tune in again for another edition with your host, Aniko Samoji, next Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then, we hope you'll have a relaxing week.